I think we have to do another round of applause for this awesome worship team. I love worshiping with them. Thank, thank them so much. Thank you so much for worshiping and leading us in worship with us. Well, my name, if you don't know me, my name is uh, Joe Novak. I'm a pastor here on staff. My official title is Discipleship Pastor. I've been here for a little bit over a year, but that entire year has been pretty much a pandemic. So if I don't know you, I'm sorry. We haven't had much time to gather and for me to get to know you, but we will soon uh, as we kind of start heading back to normal. I can't wait. We're almost there. We're getting there. All right. So um, it's been a while since we have really been anywhere else except for Corinthians. We've been in a long series of Corinthians, and we, you know, we finally ended it on Easter, and it was so much fun. I love being in Corinthians uh, with you guys. Um, I learned a lot, um, but I do want to say this. Uh, the book of Corinthians, uh, it's a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, right? And it was to us, uh, to a church in Corinth, Corinth but at the same time, the context of that letter was pretty much the same context in which we live in now as far as the church age theologically. Does that make sense? They live in a completely different culture, but it was very similar to where they're in the church age, we're in the church age. So when Paul says something to the church, he's saying it also to us as a church, okay? Now we are beginning a new series called Thriving in a Corrupt Culture, which I am so excited for in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, Okay. So this is a little bit older, and they are not in the church age. We don't have Jesus Christ the Messiah just yet, and he has not sacrificed himself just yet. But we are going to learn a little bit about the history of Judaism, a little bit about the history of the Old Testament, uh, and it's going to take a little bit extra work to get us there to start. So this morning, we're going to be a little bit information heavy. So if you've got, you know, a, a bulletin, if you've got a pen, to jot down some notes as we share some things, because I, what I want, what my prayer has been as I've been studying for this series is that I want this book of Daniel to come alive for each and every one of you. I want it to come alive. But for some of that, we need to kind of study the context in which they lived in for us to really understand it. So without uh, further ado, let's dive in and let's dive into the brief history first. So obviously we have creation, fall, promise to Abraham, exodus from Egypt, uh, giving of the law of Moses. All those things happened in the Old Testament, right? And eventually Moses led the Israelites into the promised land. And when they did, they started setting up a temple, right? King David set up a temple. And we have this era called the kings, right? The reign of the kings, okay? We're all with the kings. David, Solomon, his son, great kings. Israel, prospering, okay? Israel's prospering. We have gold. They're conquering people. It's great. It's a good time to be an Israelite. Now, they're worshiping God, and they're told to worship God a certain way through the law, right? And all these kings started to lead them a little bit astray, okay? These kings started to say, well, we can take the law of Moses, but let's just add the things that the Moabites did too, right? And then we can take what they did, and, and, and let's just add worship of Baal, because, you know, he's the weather god, and if we really pray to the weather god, maybe we'll have a great harvest and a great year of plenty this year, okay? Things like that. The kings started adding things. They would worship other idols, other lowercase g gods. And so, this started happening. What did God do? He started sending prophets, okay? Prophets to the Israelites saying, okay, if you keep doing this, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to send destruction to you because you're supposed to be worshiping me, not these other gods. That's what he started saying. 
God was sending prophets with that kind of message. Sure, you know, this started happening for a couple, I mean, a couple hundred years, and then he, the, the message started changing a little bit. He said, okay, Israelites, it's not a, if you do, if you do this, if you don't do this, I will do this. It's not that anymore. He started changing the message to, you're doing this, so I'm going to destroy your land. He started changing that message. He got really serious, and the prophets started saying, you know, doom and gloom and destruction is coming to Israel and Jerusalem. So that's kind of the setting of this book of Daniel. And what happened is, you know, a prophet, all these prophets were sending, saying that destruction is coming. And guess what happened? Destruction came. Right, the book of Daniel, our set, the setting of this book is actually in Babylon. It's not in Israel. Right, Babylon was a big kingdom of the north. Okay, huge kingdom. Powerful they were known for just destruction, corruption. The culture was corrupt. It was a, a horrible culture where they lived in sin. They lived for the pleasure of themselves. And the civilization just conquered, killed, and destroyed people in other civilizations. And that's where we're starting in this book of Daniel. And what actually we're going to find out happens right away in verse 1 is the Babylonians come in, they conquer Jerusalem, and they take the Jewish people captive, not all of them because some of them fled to the hills, but a lot of them from Jerusalem and take them to Babylon. And that's where our story starts. So I want us to remember this one thing. This is going to come up on the screen behind us. The book of Daniel is about God's plan for his people in exile in Babylon. That's what this book is about. It's about God's plan for his people in exile in Babylon. And today, we're going to learn from our hero, okay? Daniel is the hero of this story. He is a hero in this book. And God presents him as a hero in this book. And actually, Daniel presents himself as a hero in this book because he's the writer of it. But something you need to know about heroes Heroes are not always perfect, right? So Daniel is not a perfect hero, but he's going to teach us things in the way he lives and the way he does things. He's going to teach us how to live in exile away from the presence of God. So God has a plan. Okay, we're going to learn this today from Daniel. God has a plan and you can trust him. If you don't hear anything else from today, because I know it's going to be information heavy, remember this. God has a plan and you can can trust him. Let's pray as we start reading Daniel. Lord God, thank you so much that you present yourself in a way that is just magnificent. You present yourself through story, through history, a way that we can identify ourselves within these stories. And we thank you for that. I love stories. I love movies. I love books. Lord, help us to be hungry and to dive into this story so that we can learn from you, Lord, what you have for us this morning. May we take away uh, the idea that you have a plan, that we can trust you because, man, that is easy to say but hard to remember. And so, Lord, remind us of that this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
So we're going to start in Daniel, if you haven't flipped there yet. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. Let's start reading. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. There it is. That's the setting. He besieged Jerusalem, right? King Nebuchadnezzar, so the third year of Jehoiakim, all that. We can do the study and we find out that this lands on 605 BC, okay? So the first exile of the people of Jerusalem is 605 BC. But I want to talk about the details of this besieging for a moment because when, every time I've read this book in the past, I've always pictured the movie Lord of the Rings, you know, when they're going onto Minas Tirith and all these crazy people are about to besiege this massive city on the hill, right? Well, Jerusalem was a city on the hill, and I just always pictured Babylon coming in from the north, approaching these walls, archers shooting over the walls, all this crazy stuff. That's how I, I've always read this, right? And I started studying a little bit about, about the history, and that's actually not how it happened. So in order to find out how it happened, uh, let's, well, I'll tell you that in a second. But I want, I want you to know that King Joachim, the king of Judah, he knew that this was coming, right? The prophets were saying it. Now they saw the armies marching south, and they were like, oh, shoot, you know, this guy's coming. They're coming. Uh, king Joachim is like, uh... I think the prophet Jeremiah was right. He's finally realizing that, right, as they're on their way. So you don't need to flip there, but I want to I read for you what Jeremiah said 22 years before Jerusalem was besieged. 22 years. So this is 627 B.C. Jeremiah says this. The word of, God, of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord. And they shall come, and everyone shall set this throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls, all around, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil and forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. Right, so Jeremiah has been saying, I see this vision, and God says, yeah, the, the kingdoms of the north are coming. Right, so when he sees Babylon marching down, Jehoiakim is like, okay, Jeremiah was right. And if you study the history, there was actually no battle. There was no battle. Jehoiakim saw the army. They knew that they weren't going to win. They knew that God had said they're not going to win. So what did they do? They surrendered. They let them right in. They opened up the gates. They let them in. And they took the Israelites captive. And they took them to Babylon. And so they're exiled from the presence of God in their temple. But verse 16 in this prophecy is very important, okay? Because we need to understand why. Why in the world would God set up his people in a promised land, a place of promise, and then exile them away from his presence where he dwelled in the temple? Why, God, would you do that? I know that was my cry when I was reading this. Why, God, would you ever exile your people? Well, verse 16 says it, And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. 
They forsook their God. How did they do that? Well, two ways. The Israelites made offerings to other gods, right? The end of verse 16. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. So they worshipped idols. They worshipped other lowercase g gods that wasn't the one true God, Yahweh. And secondly, they lifted up their own hard work. They said, oh, we built this. Oh, we had this crop. Oh, we plowed this field. And they said, yeah, that was my work, not yours, God. They worshipped that work. See, the reality is the Israelites did not trust God's plan for them. There was a Mosaic law. They were told everything what to do and how to do it. They had every detail. But they didn't trust that. They made political parties and political friendships with other kingdoms. And they would do that by attending worship ceremonies of other gods. Some of them as bad as they had to sacrifice their own children. If you didn't know that, that was a thing in Moab. And they worshipped in that way. Horrible, horrible, horrible. They did not trust the Mosaic Law. They did not trust God's plan for them. They wanted to do it their own way and trying to figure it out their own way. You see, there are many times in our lives that we struggle to trust God just like this. This distrust tends to manifest itself in everyone's life differently. New seasons might come along and we end up with a new set of trust issues, right? You have a, you have a baby, now you don't trust such and such. You have retirement comes along, now it's like, oh my gosh, I'm not working. What do I do with my life? What, what do I do? God, I, do you even have a plan for me anymore? So I, I asked the, some of the Mission View staff this past week about some common ways they have struggled to trust God in their lives. And these were the responses. I, I asked them, what is a common way that you have struggled to trust God? These were their responses. I struggle to trust God with my kids when there are times they behave and believe things differently than I'd like them to. I struggle to trust God when sudden, unexpected life circumstances happen all at once. I struggle to trust God and his timing because I value efficiency so much. I struggle to trust God when I'm having a hard time making ends meet for my family. I struggle to trust God when me and my family are facing new health challenges. I struggle to trust God when people want to do things differently than the way I want to do them. I struggle to trust God to give me confidence that my daily decisions are in his control. And I struggle to trust God when I'm not in, in control of my own circumstances. I know a lot of you guys can identify with this, all these exact struggles. I can identify with these exact struggles. We all here can. But let's continue to read in Daniel because Daniel, our hero, has something to say about trusting God even when it's hard. He has something to say about that. So let's start in verse 2 of chapter 1 in Daniel. And the Lord God Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in, oh, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. 
Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. <coughs> Excuse me. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So this is our story. And right away in verse 2, we see something about vessels. Well, short little snippet there is King Nebuchadnezzar. This is the way he identified that he was now the ruler of Israel. He took the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem, put them in his temple, and that means to everybody in the land in the ancient Near East that, yeah, Babylon is now in charge of Israel. That's how you conquer and make a statement of conquering in that way. But we need to pay attention to our hero, Daniel. First off, uh, there's some things we can find out about our hero, Daniel, by reading this. Right, the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, was looking for people of nobility in a royal family. He was looking for youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace. And they, they had to be able to uh, teach literature and um, language of the Chaldeans. Right, so Daniel was of nobility, of the royal family. He was good-looking in appearance. He was a youth. Uh, scholars are pretty sure he was somewhere between the age of 13 and 19, and so were the rest of his friends. So, about 30, so he's a teenager, a teenager. And what does the king want with this teenager? Well, he's the best of the Israelites, and what does he want to do? He brings them to school. He says, for three years, I'm putting you in my school. And what are they going to do in that school? Well, they're going to learn everything that the Chaldean people do, everything that the Babylonians do, right? Their literature, their way of living, all of it. Some of these things that they're going to learn, so a little bit about King Nebuchadnezzar and how he conquers things, he wants to know everything about the future that he can get, right? So he teaches people in his school how to predict the future. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for people to interpret visions, inter interpret dreams. He wants to know what's coming so that he can reign in his land and be the king and protect it forever. That's, that's his goal. So he's teaching these young Israelites and everyone else in captivity in the school, the best of the Israelites, astronomy, uh, sorcery, all these crazy weird things um, so that they can predict the future for the king. That's why the king wants him in his room. The king want, needs that futuristic knowledge so he can continue to stay on his throne. Right? So in this school, they go to this school, and the king assigns them some food and some wine. And it's Babylonian and Chaldean food and wine. But this is the biggest thing of all. Right away, what does he do? He changes their names. 
He goes right, right for their name. Why is this? Well, in Jewish culture, you're, you're, you've given a name, and what do you do? Pretty much by middle school age, the Jewish children, they have the entire book of Torah, the first five books of the Bible that, that the Jewish people called the Torah, they have it memorized. Right? So Daniel, this person Daniel, memorized the entire Torah, the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible. Memorized all of it, had it all in his mind, right? So Daniel had all of this memorized. Now, what does King Nebuchadnezzar want to do with this school and all the chief of the eunuchs and the leadership of the school? Well, they want to brainwash these young teenagers. They want to brainwash them. And so when they're, the way they want to brainwash them is they give them a new name. And they say, yeah, yeah, Daniel knows the Torah. Daniel knows the old law, the old culture that you used to live in Jerusalem. But Belteshazzar, now that's a name of someone who's the best of the best. Someone who's in a school, in King Nebuchadnezzar's school, and knows how to predict the future, knows how to read the astronomy and the stars. That's what they were trying to do. They were trying to brainwash these teenagers so that they can use them to continue to reign in their land. And the way they did it is by changing their name. This is a big deal. And I know this is our first point. Our first point is here that God has a plan. You can trust him even when we feel God is far away. That's your first fill-in if you're following along there. I know if someone were to change my name, I would feel so distant from everything I know. Everything that Joe Novak is, it's like, it's defined by my name, Joe Novak. The things I know, the things I've learned, my behavior, the way I am, my personality. Like Joe Novak, I don't know how else to explain it. I'm Joe. But now you change my name and try to say, you know, Daniel's going through the same thing. Try to change Daniel's name to Belteshazzar. You can restructure the way he thinks. And I know if you tried to change my name, I would feel super far away from God. Daniel, he probably felt super far away from God because now he's trying to restructure everything he knew about God and who God is. This is not a good situation. But here's the reality. God has a plan and you can trust him even when we feel God is far away way. Let's keep reading in verse 8. The story continues with our hero Daniel. But Daniel, see that he just got his name changed, and he says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear, my lord, that the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants 
for 10 days. This is Daniel speaking. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So we listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Can you believe that? God has a plan and you can trust him even if it means being counter-cultural. That's your second fill-in in your notes. God has a plan. You can trust him even if it means being counter-cultural. So what's going on here? They're given food already. Old Testament law would teach Daniel that he's not supposed to eat pork. He's not supposed to get drunk off of wine. Right? That's, that's who Daniel is. Daniel does not eat pork and he does not get drunk from wine. Well, then he's presented at this school all this food, right? The chief of the eunuchs, you know, there's all these students sitting around. They're all teenagers. They put all this pork, you know, pork loin, pork, whatever else kind of pork you like. I love pork, but all this pork, uh, puts it on the table. And Daniel's like, I'm not supposed to eat that. All right, little side note. You know, I eat pork. We all can eat pork. Remember, this is a big difference between church age, Old Testament times, Jewish times. After Jesus came, you know, Peter had a dream. We can all eat pork now, okay? It's okay. <laughs> we can all eat pork. So if, you, if you're having pork loin for lunch, you're allowed to eat it. But, but back then, the law was that you, it would be unclean. You would defile yourself if you ate pork, okay? That was just the law. And so Daniel did not eat pork. But Belteshazzar is now sitting at the table with all these teenagers presented with a bunch of pork and a lot of wine to drink if he wanted it. Man, I'll tell you what, I don't know if I'm as good as this hero. Our hero was hero enough to say, you know, I'm not supposed to eat this. He's probably hungry. So what does he do? He goes to the chief and he says, hey man, I can't defile myself. I can't eat this pork. My God does not let us eat pork and get drunk off wine. We don't do that. I'm, you know, I can't do it. Well, the king's like, okay, well, what, what then? Daniel's like, give me some vegetables and water. Okay, well, I can't do that. Why? You know, the chief, the eunuch says, he can't give Daniel pork because if I do that, the king will have my head. Oh, okay, that's pretty serious. Pretty darn serious here. So if that's the case, what then? Well, Daniel, I am so amazed by our hero. You know what he does? In his wisdom, in his discernment, obviously God, it's said that God gave him favor in this moment in the chief, but he says, all right. Daniel thinks about it and he says, I know that the king Nebuchadnezzar, he wants me to be good looking in appearance. He wants all these things for me and my friends. He presents a scenario, a test to the chief of the eunuchs. He says, Test us for 10 days. 
give us vegetables and water for 10 days, if we're better looking in appearance than everyone else at this table, then just let us keep the vegetables and water. If not, we'll eat the pork. Okay, the chief of the eunuchs. God gave Daniel favor in the eyes of the chief of the eunuchs, and he says, okay, let's try out your test. And what happens? Well, it worked. After 10 days, the chief of the eunuchs was like, wow, you guys are better looking than everyone else. All right, we'll give you vegetables and water instead of the wine and the pork. That's a big deal. You know, the second point is um, God has a plan and you can trust him even if it means being countercultural. In that moment, Daniel had a choice, right? He could either try to stand up and be like Daniel or he could just submit to being Belteshazzar and start eating whatever. But what's crazy is he doesn't just brashly storm out of there and try to run away to his death because they'd probably kill him if he tried to do that. He doesn't do that. In his wisdom, he goes to the chief and he presents a scenario. I, I was so impressed in the way Daniel stood up for his culture. He didn't just barge in there and said, this is, this is what we're doing, and if not, run away. I don't know, I, I feel like that's what I would do. <laughs> I'm like, no, I can't do this, I'm out of here, and sprint off. No. He went in there, he had a reasonable conversation with the chief, presented a test because he knew what the king ultimately wanted, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he knew what God, his king, ultimately wanted. And he presented this test and in a wisdom and in immense discernment passed the test. And he was countercultural in the right way. We can learn from that. I was so impressed with the Daniel that we know and read about right now. Right, so God has a plan and you can trust him even if it means being countercultural. You're going to have to be patient with me for a second because I got so into that that I, I lost my spot in my Bible. <laughs> the pressure's on. So we're going to pick up reading in Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So what happened? This is point number three. God has a plan and you can trust him. And he might bring us worldly success. God has a plan, you can trust him, and he might bring us worldly success. You see, Daniel here right away, he succeeds. Him and his friends succeed. They go to the school where all the best people get there. And what do they come out as? 
the best of the best. They're the best of the best in this school, in Babylon, in this place of evil. The best of the best. They have all the worldly success. They, they are to be in the king's throne room helping him uh, understand visions and dreams and to know the future. But I had to, I absolutely had to insert the word might into my point. Because Daniel here, he was given worldly success, but nowhere else in Scripture, right? When we read the Bible, we have to read it through the lens of the entire Bible. And when we read the Bible, there is nowhere in Scripture that says, if we follow God's law, we're promised worldly success. In the New Testament, it's actually the exact opposite. When we follow the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says stuff like this all the time, and his testimony, his story, is a witness to it. When we follow the gospel of Jesus Christ, what happens? We're promised suffering, trials, and affliction. Right? Paul was beaten. Paul was shipwrecked. And all he was trying to do was deliver a message. He was put on house arrest. He was killed eventually. In the Bible, when we follow God's law and we witness to who Jesus Christ is, we're promised suffering. It's coming and ultimately death. Here in Daniel, he follows God's law. He does something completely countercultural and what happens? He gets worldly success. Why? Because Dan, or God has a plan for our hero, Daniel. God has a plan. Now, there's a whole book of wisdom that we have, and one of the books is called Proverbs, right? Well, the Proverbs say things like, if you get up early in the morning, what will happen? If you get up early in the morning, you go to work, what happens? You get rich. It says that in Proverbs. But here's the thing about Proverbs. The Proverbs are probabilities, not promises. Remember that, if you've never heard that before. The Proverbs are probabilities, not promises. So if you get up in the morning really early and you go to work earlier than everyone else, what happens? You will probably be rich. Probably. It's a good likelihood. If you work that hard, you will probably be rich. It's a probability, but it's not a promise. So there's a lot of things like that in the entire Bible. So we might receive worldly success. We might. Daniel, he did. Why? Because God has a plan and you can trust him. Now, Daniel's in exile, right? Completely away from his home. And so are his friends. There are times in our relationship with God that we feel like we're in exile. We feel like we can't feel God. We feel like, God, where in the world are you? Why do you feel so distant? I know I get like this sometimes in my own head. I'm like, I'm supposed to be worshiping God. I love God. Yes, I'm praying right now. But like my mind is over here in right field thinking about the bills or the budget or the, you know, I'm just, I'm just like, why can't I concentrate? God, I'm over here with you. I'm, and I just feel like he's distant. I can't focus on who he is. We feel, we can feel as if God's presence 
is extremely far away from us and that we're exiled in our own heads from God. This happens. Well, I think you need to ask yourself one question because we're learning from our hero, Daniel, and I think Daniel does so well with this, right? He was presented with the opportunity to sin in this place of evil called Babylon, and he didn't. I'm sure that was extremely uncomfortable and difficult. And sometimes you have to say no to something that's comfortable and familiar in order to kind of feel the presence of God again. There are occasions where you have to do that. So you might ask yourself a question like this, what comfortable and familiar thing do I need to let God destroy in order for me to be closer to him, right? God might need to destroy some sin in your life. You might just need to submit and obey like Daniel did. Then see what happens. You might not be wise enough like Daniel to present this great test and figure out some way how to do this. You know, it could be bad. You say no to a boss who's trying to get you to cheat and lie. That's not easy. You might lose your job. But that's what the kind of thing that Daniel does here. Daniel risked his life. He did something extremely uncomfortable. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then hear me now. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you enough to die on the cross for your sins. He's died on your cross for your sins. He resurrected from the dead in three days, defeating death, and saved you. That's what he did for you today. For the Christians here today, there may be some sins in your life that you like and enjoy. But Jesus loves you enough in your life to die for those sins, right? The least you can do for him is to let those sins die and cling tightly to God and your relationship with him. Sometimes it's God's plan to take you into exile, to remind you of his law. God has a plan, and you can trust him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and the way you reveal yourself to us is just unthinkable. I, you know, I would have never thought to do it the way you do, but man, I love stories and I'm so thankful that we get to dive into the book of Daniel that you've humbly provided to us so we can learn from our hero. And so I pray for uh, Pastor Matt and the rest of the pastors as we study the history from a long time ago, that we can learn how to trust you, that we can learn what you're trying to do to us when we're in exile from you, that we can learn and change to be more like you every single day in our lives. So Lord, help us to take a stand for love for the love of you, for loving you. And Lord, we turn our eyes to worship you now.